0: Well, what a week it's been. What a crisis the world faced at the start of the week. Am I talking about petrol running out in the four courts or empty shelves in some shops and supermarkets? No. Am I talking about the fear, the real fear, that there might not be quality street on the shelves of Tesco this Christmas? No. Am I talking about the potential conflict between Taiwan? And China, no. I'm talking about Instagram and Facebook and WhatsApp crashing for seven hours on Monday. And the world, it seemed, had ended for those seven hours. How many of you, be honest, how many of you, first of all, kept thinking it was just your phone? I even turned mine on and off a few times. I, I thought it was just my phone. And then uh, and then uh, I went on to... Uh, uh, Twitter to try and figure out, and I discovered that thousands of people were tweeting, there was mass panic, there was a meltdown, because people couldn't get on to scroll down and see what people they don't know were like were doing that particular day. And I realized that so many of the things that we call crises or problems are really first world problems, aren't they? They're really not that significant at all. And yet there's people in the world who have real problems and real crises. And we're going to look at one of those today. We're going to look at a a king in Israel around 700 years before Christ, and he faces a crisis. He faces a moment where there's the possibility that he's going to be wiped out and that his people are going to be destroyed as well. And the title of the message today is this, When the Enemy Shows Up. When the enemy shows up. And we're going to be thinking about that from two angles. One is when does the enemy show up? When do we tend to get attacked in our lives? When does the devil tend to focus his attention on us? And secondly, when the enemy shows up, what do we do? How do we respond? How do we overcome? How do we press through? How do we persevere and get through the battle? So let's look at a passage in Second Chronicles. We want to set a little bit of context. Chronicles is, is the, the history, really, of the kings of Israel particularly after David and Solomon. Uh, the, the, the monarchy and the, the godliness of Israel really reached its pinnacle and peak with David and Solomon. And then there began this gradual decline into uh, degradation, into sin, into immorality, where people like Ahab, remember Ahab and Jezebel, you these kings who came along and they started to worship other gods. They started to drift away from Yahweh, the one true God. And as leaders drift away, that filters through to people. And we see that in every sphere of society, don't we? We see it in government, local and national and worldwide. We see it in churches, that where leaders start making ungodly decisions, the culture very quickly goes into crisis. And that's what happens here in Israel. And God lifts his hand of blessing. God lifts his hand of protection off Israel. And they're in a real mess because God cannot and he will not bless sin and immorality. And so there's a real sense of decline and decay in Israel and Judah at 700 BC. But then a new king comes to the throne because God always preserves a remnant. And there's a guy called Hezekiah becomes king, and he is different. Look at what we read about him in Second Chronicles 29. Hezekiah began to reign when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. Hezekiah isn't like the guys who have gone before him. He has a different spirit. He has a different heart. His heart is devoted to the Lord, his God, Yahweh. And so he decides, I'm going to turn things around. I'm going to bring change. I'm going to bring transformation to this country. And yet we're going to see in a few moments that even though he did the right thing, the enemy still came against him. And that's what I want to to think about quickly. When does the enemy show up? When does the enemy tend to attack? At what moments do you tend to experience the most temptation, the most spiritual conflict, the most adversity or adversaries? The enemy shows up of two things in this section. The enemy shows up when you're putting wrong right. The enemy tends to show up when you're putting wrong right. Look at verses four and five. In the first year of his reign in the first month, Hezekiah opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He opened the doors. That would indicate that the house of the Lord was closed. They had closed the temple. They had closed the church because the people didn't care about worshiping God. He repaired them. In other words, he didn't care about the state of disrepair they had fallen into. He brought in the priests and the Levites and assembled them. In the square on the east, and said to them, Hear me, Levites, now consecrate yourselves. In other words, deal with the stuff, make yourself holy before the Lord, and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry out the filth from the holy place. Even the holy place had got desecrated with idolatry. For our fathers have been unfaithful and have done what was evil in the sight of of the Lord. So Hezekiah wants to get things back in order. He wants to remove idolatry. He wants to remove immorality. And he starts with the church. He starts with the temple because that's where God always starts. You know, it's easy for the church to point the finger at the world around us and go, it's so dark. It's so evil out there. But actually God always points the finger first at the church. And he says, I want you to sort out your mess. I want you to get in right, son. I want you to live by the book. I want you to fulfill the purpose that I have for you. And when you do that, then you can impact and influence the world. And God always starts with his own house. And Hezekiah calls the people back to worship of the one true God. He restores the festivals. He restores the feasts. He restores the Passover. In other words, everything that his predecessors had let go, he brings back into place. And in my own life, and in my own experience, I have discovered that that's when the enemy shows up, when you want to start putting things right. When you start looking at your life and going, I don't want to live like this. I don't want to live with this anymore. Suddenly the enemy attacks. Some of you will know that from church life, maybe previous churches you've been in. Once you start to to say, I don't want this church to be like this, it's become ungodly. There's things here that should never have been here. Then the enemy tends to show up. When you're trying to make changes for the better when you get sick of being lukewarm and wishy-washy and decide you're going to be fully devoted to Christ, when you start to challenge compromise in your life or your church or your culture, when you go against the flow, when you stop blending in, when you stop being politically correct, when you stop being wishy-washy, that's when the enemy tends to show up. As someone once said, if you are never running into the enemy, it must be because you're both going in the same direction all the time. So that's the first time the enemy shows up, when you're putting things right that have been wrong, when you're turning things around. The second time is this. The enemy shows up when you take a step of faith. The enemy shows up when you take a step of faith. Hezekiah's passion and devotion for the Lord are contagious. And it begins, just like bad leadership trickles down, good leadership trickles down to the people. And look at what we read. The whole assembly worshiped, and the singers sang, and the trumpeters trumpeted, sounded, and all this continued until the burnt offering was finished. When the offering was finished, the king and all who were present with him bowed themselves and worshipped, and Hezekiah the king and the officials commanded the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and Asaph the seer. And they sang praises with gladness, and they bowed down and they start to express worship of the one true God. In fact, it was meant to go on for a week, and it says after a week, they said, we're going to continue this for another week. 14 days of continuous, 24-7 worship and prayer. These are people, don't forget, who just before this have been worshiping other gods, other idols, and now their hearts are devoted, and they start to worship the one true God, but it's not just with their lips. It begins to affect their behavior. Their belief begins to affect their behavior. Their worship affects their lives. Because look at, at what we we read. Hezekiah commanded the people who lived in Jerusalem to give a portion due to the priests and Levites that they might give themselves to the law of the Lord. As soon as the command was spread abroad, the people of Israel gave in stinginess. Gave just enough. No, they gave in abundance the first fruits of grain, wine, oil, oil honey and of all the produce of the field and they brought in abundantly the tithe of everything in other words it's not just a shallow change, it's not just a superficial change, it affects our pocket and as I always say Salvation that affects your heart but doesn't affect your pocket is not genuine salvation. Because when you're truly saved, when you're born again, when God comes into your life, it affects every part of your life. Not just what you do for one hour, 15 minutes on a Sunday morning. It affects every moment of every day of your life. And this begins to affect their, 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 their giving. They have a gift day. And actually we read that so much is brought in that they have to build bigger barns and bigger storage facilities for it all because they don't know what to do because the people are so generous because they're so devoted to the Lord. So the enemy shows up when you want to put things right that have been wrong. And the enemy shows up when you start to take steps of faith. When you start to step out and follow God in a new way. And I'm sure you have experienced that and I have. I think about our own lives. I think about me beginning training for ministry 18 years ago when I left my job in Unilever. And I gave back my company car, and I loved my job, and I loved the car. And I thought, you know what? I have sacrificed so much to go into To to training for ordained ministry, you know, God is just going to lavish blessings upon me. You know, he's going to replace that company car with a Mercedes or something like that. Um, It turned out it was a second-hand Ford Focus from the auctioneers, but but it was it was a good Ford Focus. It was a Z-Tag. but but I just thought it was going to be blessing upon blessing upon blessing. You know, I thought I would be the, the next cross between Mother Teresa. Billy Graham and Benny Hinn. You know, it was just going to be all just blessing. And within two months, I found myself in the lowest, darkest place I'd ever been up until that point in my life. And I couldn't explain why. There was nothing particular had happened. But those of you who have ever experienced the darkness that descends upon you at times, you get up in the morning and it's like just a weight. You can almost feel it in your chest, and your stomach. And you go to bed at night and that was my life for a few months, two or three months. And I remember coming home at Christmas at the end of that first term and lying in my, my bedroom and just going, God, I don't know if I can do this. And the enemy was trying to take me out before I was even beginning. And then I fast forward to our, our third year in Dublin and things were going well, but I decided I'd pray a bold prayer. Because I'd heard my friend Alan Scott up at the Causeway Coast Vineyard say that he'd got tired of not seeing many people come to faith. And so he had prayed one year that 100 people would come to faith. So I thought if my friend Alan Scott can pray that, I'm going to pray that too. Now I should have really thought it through because the year before we'd only seen eight or nine people come to faith. So eight to 100 was quite a big jump, but God loves bold prayers. And that year on our Sunday morning services, we saw 96 People come to faith. It was incredible. Every Sunday morning, people were responding to the gospel. People were being set free from drugs. People were being healed. People were getting demons delivered from them. Relationships and marriages were being restored. Hindus and Muslims were being baptized by full immersion in water. It was wonderful, but then the enemy started pushing back. And for the next year, there wasn't a single week in our household that one of the three of us, if not all three of us, was sick. And our health went downhill, and our family life went downhill, and our marriage went downhill. And in the midst of all this incredible stuff that God was doing, the enemy was pushing back, because there are two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God, and there's a kingdom of darkness. And when you start taking territory from the kingdom of darkness, it brings you into the battle. I used to do martial arts, and you know what? When we would compete, when, my, when my, my teammates were in the ring, I felt fine. It was only when I stepped into the ring that I was likely to get a kick to the head. When you're on the sidelines, the enemy doesn't care. You're not a threat. But when you step in, you're now in active service. And the enemy takes notice. And the enemy wants to, to pull you back. And we'll see how he does that in just a moment. Look at the first verse of chapter 32. After after all that, Hezekiah had so faithfully done. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah. He led siege to the fortified cities, thinking to conquer them for himself. How does the enemy show up? This verse almost seems like a dichotomy, doesn't it? After all that Hezekiah has so faithfully done. It should read, and God blessed him abundantly and saved him from his enemies. After all that he had so faithfully done, it says the enemy, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah. You see, in the church, we have been taught this false thing somewhere along the way that if you serve God, if you are fully devoted to him, if you do good things, then God is obligated to do good things for you. It's almost like Christian karma, you know, quid pro quo. God owes you something. So you do good things and God, and it's just blessing after blessing after blessing. And I do believe that God blesses obedience. Don't get me wrong. But the truth of the situation is that sometimes it's because you're being obedient, because you're being faithful, because you're being passionate about your faith, because you're being devoted, because you're being generous, that you begin to face attack. You appear on the enemy's radar and all the forces of hell come against you. And some of you need to know today that the attacks that are coming against you are not because you've done something wrong, it's because you're doing something right. Because it's very easy when you're under attack to start blaming yourself and thinking, I must be disobedient. And sometimes there is stuff in our lives we need to sort out. But sometimes it's because, you know what, you can do the right thing and have everything still go wrong. You can be a faithful husband or wife and still be cheated on. You can be a committed, devoted friend and still be betrayed. You can live a healthy lifestyle and still get sick. You can work really hard and still be made redundant. The Bible tells us that Satan has one mission steal, kill, and destroy. That he prowls like a roaring lion seeking to devour. And you know what the Bible also says in Isaiah 54? That no weapon formed against me shall prosper. But if it says that no weapon formed against me shall prosper, do you know what that means? There will be weapons formed against you. They just won't prosper. There will be weapons formed against you. And the two weapons that the enemy always uses against the people of God are this, intimidation and fear. Intimidation and fear. His goal is to make you think that he is bigger than he is and that your God is smaller than he is. His goal is to have you shrink down and feel contained and to to just crawl into a corner and, and, and be ineffective and passive and to be afraid of him. That's always his mission, to contain you so that you won't step into the purpose and destiny that God has for you. Look at what we read here, verses 9 to 14. When Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and all his forces were laying siege to Lachish, he sent his officers to Jerusalem with this message for Hezekiah. So he sends Hezekiah a, a wee message. This is what Sennacherib, king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing your confidence? Because the enemy always goes after your confidence. That you remain in Jerusalem under siege. When Hezekiah says the Lord our God will save us from the hand of the king of Assyria... He is misleading you. He goes after the integrity of the leader. He wants them to start questioning the integrity of the leader. Don't trust the king. He's misleading you. He's going to let you die of hunger and thirst. In other words, the king isn't looking out for your best interests. Do you not know what I and my predecessors have done to all the peoples of the other lands? Were the gods of those nations ever able to deliver their land from my hand? In other words, I have a history of violence. I have a history of destruction. Why should you be any different? How then can your God deliver you from my hand? Your God's no different than anyone else. You're going to go the same way as everyone else. Look at that language. It's threatening. It's intimidating. This is actually quite mild. This is one of those stories that appears three times, actually, in the Old Testament. Also in uh, 2 Kings 19 and uh, Isaiah thirty-seven. And in the language in those other two passages, this is actually what he says to Hezekiah. Your people will have to eat their own excrement and drink their own urine. Sounds like a lovely fella, doesn't he? Probably from Lurgan somewhere or something like that with that sort of chat, huh? But the point is this. The enemy's goal is to intimidate and to instill so much fear and apprehension and unsettledness into your life that you just go, what's the point? I'm just going to surrender. I'm going to raise a white flag. And you crawl into a corner. Keep your head down. Don't bother speaking up. What's the point? I'll just try to avoid conflict. I'll just give up. That's what the enemy does. That's what our culture does to the church. Church, just be quiet. Yeah, do your wee Sunday thing, but don't think that you have any voice into the rest of society. Keep your faith private. It calls us names. Bigoted, narrow-minded, phobic, you know, all those phobic words we have now. And I, I believe minorities should be protected, don't get me wrong. But Islamophobic and homophobic and transphobic. Can I tell you what group on the planet today faces the most persecution and hatred? It's Christians. The church faces more persecution and hatred every day than any other group in this planet. But the enemy wants the church just to shut up, know its place, button down the hatches, and not get involved in transforming society. He wants us stuck in powerless and passivity. But there's something else I noticed very specific about this intimidation. Look at this, verse 18. Then they called out in Hebrew to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to terrify them and make them afraid in order to capture the city. Now, where are these people from? They're from Assyria. So they should be speaking Syrian. I mean, I went to Clona and I can figure that out. Okay. Their language was Syrian, but what language are they speaking to intimidate and, and bring fear? Hebrew, the language of the people. And the other two passages, it actually says that, 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 that uh, the Hebrew said, will you please stop because the people can understand you. said, no, that's why we're talking in Hebrew, so they can understand us. You know what that says to me? That the enemy can speak the language of your greatest weakness and vulnerability. That the enemy knows exactly where you're weakest. That the enemy knows where you're most vulnerable. Do you know why I'm preaching on this passage today? It was about 12 days ago. One morning I woke up and the first, randomly, the first word in my mind was sanachirub, sanachirub. And I was like, sanachirub? Now, I've since discovered I'm pronouncing it, I've been pronouncing it wrong, as Sennacherib, but I'd always pronounced it sanachirub. So all day I'm going, and I'm like, I think that's in the Old Testament somewhere, and I, I sort of put it out of my head, and all day it keeps coming back to me, about five times I think sanachirub, sanachirub, sanachirub. And then I, I decided to go and study it, and and as I say, as I studied it, I realized it was Sennacherib. But God knew I was too dumb to understand Sennacherib. And so he, he spoke Sennacherib because that's what I'd always thought, how you pronounce it. Because God speaks our language. God will speak your language. God, when he wants to communicate with you, will not do it in a lofty way that you can't understand. He will speak to you in a way that you do understand. That's why on the day of Pentecost, they all heard them speaking in their own tongue. God isn't trying to hide things from you. So God speaks to you in your language, but so does the enemy. And the enemy knows your weaknesses. And the enemy knows your particular vulnerability. And the enemy knows those places in your life where he can poke. And he knows those words to say. Those words to whisper in your ear. And what he wants you to do, because he's called the father of lies and joining it. He wants to speak lies to you and his goal is that you would come into agreement with those lies. So he starts to speak things. He starts to whisper things. And his goal and his mission and his purpose is, the end, is, that, is that you would start to take those things on board and that that would start to filter into your life. You know, in August most of you will know we had COVID in our household, all of us. And uh, in the midst of feeling pretty rubbish physically, myself and and Becky uh, struggling to catch a breath, in the midst of all of the physical weakness that we felt, I had a really vivid dream one night. And in the dream, I was in a big room. It was a church. It wasn't this church, but it was the church I was leading in the dream. And I was... Uh, the worship came to an end and I got up to preach and my notes were all over the place and I, I just kept going, guys, just give me a minute. And I was fiddling and I was disorganized and people were getting restless. And, 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 and one by one, people started to get out, get up and, and to leave the room until I looked up and there was absolutely nobody there. And it was strange because in the dream, the church was in a hotel And in the function room next door, there was another church meeting. And so I followed the people out who had left because there was nobody else in my church anymore. And I found they all went into the church next door and they were all listening to the preacher there. And in the time of my physical weakness, he also targeted my calling. He was whispering in my ear, nobody wants to listen to you. Why would anybody care what you have to say? Why don't you just stop this preaching? Stop this... It's all over the place anyway. Everybody's going to walk away. And he knew that was the language that would affect me. What is it that he whispers to you? Nobody will ever love you because of what you've done. That thing that you did in your past, you can never move on from that. The reason you're not married is because nobody would ever want somebody like you. Why bother a plan for that job sure everybody else is going to be more qualified than you are? Why bother trying to change that part of your life? You've tried before and it's never worked, so why bother trying to put it right now? You're never going to overcome this. You're never going to succeed at anything. Why don't you just be quiet? Nobody cares what you have to say. Everybody just laughs at you behind your back when you talk anyway. The reason that happened to you... Back there is because you deserved it. You were so stupid. Any of that sound familiar to anybody? He knows your weakness. He knows your vulnerability. And his goal is to speak those lies and for you to come into agreement so that that begins to affect and infect your life. His tactic is And his strategy has never changed. And that's so important for us to realize so that we know how to respond when the enemy shows up. And that's where I'm finishing really quickly. Three ways we respond when the enemy shows up. And the first one is this. Cut off the supply. Cut off the supply. Look at what we read. When Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib, apparently, had come and that he had intended to wage war against Jerusalem, he consulted with his officials and military staff about blocking off the water from the springs outside the city. And they helped him. They gathered a large group of people who blocked all the springs and the stream that flowed through the land. Why should the kings of Assyria come and find plenty of water, they said. So the Assyrians aren't actually in Jerusalem yet, they're outside the city, they've led siege to it. And Hezekiah and his his leaders get together and go, you know what? There's water flowing to those guys. that's refreshing them and nourishing them. Why don't we cut off the water? Why should we allow our water to sustain them? And so they cut off the flow of water. In other words, they've stopped sustaining the enemy. Instead of feeding them, they're starving them. And what I want to ask you is this. What are you feeding in your life that you should be starving? What are you sustaining that you should be starving? What is there that you're allowing to flow into the, your life that's bringing negativity, that's bringing uh, uh, just uh, uh, just dissension, that's bringing hurt, that's bringing things into your mind that shouldn't be there? What are you allowing to continually flow in that you need to cut off? What are you feeding That you should be starving because in the natural, so in the spiritual and so in the emotional, whatever you feed grows and whatever you starve gets smaller. If you're dwelling on negative thoughts all day, don't be shocked if you're a negative person. If you're constantly thinking critical thoughts about other people, don't be shocked if people find it difficult to be around you. If you're constantly remembering and rehearsing all of your failures and mistakes and all of the things that you've done in the past and all your inadequacies and insecurities don't be shocked if you find that you don't have a lot of confidence. If you're constantly feeding your mind on your phone and on your laptop screen on images that you shouldn't be looking at, don't be shocked if you don't have the marriage or relationships that you want to have. Because what you feed grows. And so what you need to do is starve the source. Starve it and stop it and cut it off. If you're around negative people all the time and they're influencing the way you think, you need to starve that source. You need to cut those people out of your life. There's environments and people and places and things that we just need to cut off because they're draining you and they're pulling you down. And you need to fill your mind with the word of God. We need to fill our mind with the truth because if the devil is a liar, Jesus says, I am the truth. Jesus only ever speaks truth. We talked about that earlier about your identity. Some of us struggle to sing that. But that is the truth. That what this book says about you is the truth. This is your mirror. This is your identity. And as you fill your mind with God's word instead of of the lies of the enemy, you will discover that fear flees and confidence and courage rises. That's why God told Joshua, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous. Why or how? Meditate on this book day and night. As you fill your mind with the word of God, strength and courage will begin to rise. Cut off the supply. Number two, repair the broken walls. Verse five. Then he worked hard repairing all the broken sections of the wall and building towers on it. He built another wall outside that one and reinforced the terraces of the city of David. In those days, a city was only as safe as the walls were strong. That's why Nehemiah, when he hears about the walls of Jerusalem later on, it says he weeps and wants to rebuild them because a, a city without walls was a vulnerable city. A city without walls was a, a city that could be overrun at any time. A city without walls was defenseless. And do you know what the broken walls represent? Those places in our lives where we're particularly vulnerable. The broken walls Represent those places in our lives where the enemy has the easiest access. Because the enemy will always go to the place of least resistance in your life. And we all have them. We all have those areas in our lives where, where he doesn't have to try that hard. Because things are broken. There's wounds, there's cracks, there's things from our past, there's little triggers. There's, there's things that he knows if he can get us there, it's an easy access. And the truth is, we all have those things. And I want to say this: it's okay to have broken places, but it's not okay just to be content with your broken places. You see, here's what I have seen in the church over the last few while. Because we we're, we're, we we love grace in this church. We love that God takes us as we are. But we can almost develop a mentality of wearing our brokenness as a badge of honor we go, this is just the way I am, and God, ex- you know, and, and we kind of get addicted almost to our brokenness and it kind of becomes our identity and this is just who I am because God accepts me, so you just have to put up with it. Can I say to you that yes, God does accept you with no matter what brokenness you have. But when Jesus died on the cross, his body was broken that you might be healed. We have been singing it. He is a healer. Jesus is a restorer. Jesus is our liberator. Jesus sets us free. Jesus uh, delivers us. The word for salvation doesn't just mean going to heaven when you die. It's not a ticket to heaven. It's sozo. It means healed. It means restored. It means delivered. It means set free. It means made whole. That's why Jesus died. Not just so you could carry your baggage from pre-salvation into heaven but so that you could find freedom, so that you could find life because he came to give you life and life more abundantly so that you could repair the walls of your life and so that you don't have to live with that brokenness. Yes, it is a process and yes, it's a constant thing, but Jesus came to make you whole. Jesus came to set you free. Jesus came to heal you. And so therefore, we shouldn't be content with our brokenness. We should do whatever we have to do to be made whole. And for some of us, that means getting on our knees and repenting. For some of of us, it means talking to somebody, maybe going to a counselor, maybe it means getting accountability, maybe it means going to a 12-step program. Whatever that is, do whatever you need to do to be made whole. But do not live the rest of your life nursing your brokenness. Because Jesus has so much more for you than that. And that brokenness will always become the crack in the wall where the enemy finds access. Some of you know that. And if you don't fix your brokenness, you know what happens. You go and you splurge your brokenness on everybody else around you. And they spend the rest of their lives with you, having to deal with it too. We all have it. I have it. But Jesus came. And had his body broken, that we would be healed and restored. Repair the broken walls. And thirdly and finally, as I finish, pray and release the situation to God. Pray and release the situation to God. King Hezekiah, verse 20. King Hezekiah and the prophet, I love that word, annihilated all the fighting men and the commanders and the officers in the camp of the Assyrian king. So he withdrew. Excuse me. So he withdrew to his own land in disgrace. And when he went into the temple of his God, his God who he had just been boasting about, some of his own sons, his own flesh and blood, cut him down with the sword. So the Lord, just in case you're in any doubt, so the Lord saved Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and from the hand of all others. He took care of them on every side. Hezekiah and Isaiah get on their knees, get on their faces before the God of heaven and they cry out to him. And the God of heaven hears their prayer and he intervenes. And look at what it says. He sent an angel, not a squadron of angels, not a battalion of angels, not an army of angels, one angel who struck down the whole Assyrian army. This is not dualism. This is not God and the devil equal. I wonder who's going to win. One angel sent from God wipes out, it says in another passage, 185,000 enemies. One angel, that's all it took. And the angel is sent in response to prayer. In fact, in Isaiah, it actually says, because you prayed, I'm intervening. In other words, if you hadn't prayed, I wouldn't have. And I think God wants to restore to his people again an understanding of the power of prayer. That prayer moves heaven. That prayer changes things here on earth. There's things that will happen if you pray that won't happen if you don't pray. That we have access to the throne room of God by our words. And when we pray, we have a God in heaven who hears and he is not powerless, but he intervenes in our situation. God wants to remind us you have the resources. You have not exhausted the resources of heaven. You have all of heaven's resources. Just on your lips, if you would just come before me in prayer. Yes, it's more than prayer. Yes, they blocked off the source. Yes, they rebuilt the walls. So yes, it's more than prayer, but it's always prayer. It's not just prayer. Here's what... It is, it's you do whatever you can do and, and pray and bring God into do what only he can do. They did what they could do. They could cut off the water. They could repair the walls. But after that, it was all about what he did. And yes, we need to do with, things with wisdom. And yes, we need to strategize. And yes, we need to plan. But there comes a point where we go, you know what, God, I have done everything I can do in this situation. And my son or daughter hasn't come home. I have done everything I can do and I haven't got that job yet. I have done everything I can do and I haven't seen healing yet. I have done everything I can do and I haven't seen my breakthrough yet. But God, there's a God in heaven. And I know that you can do what I can't do. So God, I invite you into this situation. You have not exhausted the resources of heaven. And you know, as I finish, one of my favorite stories... One of the books that affected me most in my early years of my Christian life was a book called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire by Jim Simbala, who's, who's the pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle. And there's a story in it that I often tell, but it just emphasizes the power of prayer, and I want to share it with you. Pastor Sambala begins by sharing a time of, of great struggle within his family. Their daughter, Christy, who had always been a good child, wandered from God. She began to get into the wrong company. She started dating this guy who was everything that her parents didn't want for her. And eventually, that hostility and the conflict at home came so strong that she moved out and moved in with her boyfriend. And then, Pastor Jim Sambala talks in his book about how they were having their midweek prayer meeting. And they were taking prayer requests. And as they were praying and as they were crying out, a woman came up to Pastor Jim and said, Pastor, I think we should pray for Christy. I think we should pray for your daughter. And he was conflicted because he didn't want to make it about himself. He didn't want to make it about his family. And yet he felt in those moments that the church should pray because they had tried everything else and it hadn't worked. And he says it was like a labor ward. It was like a maternity ward as the people groaned and cried and lifted Christy up before the God of heaven, pleading for her soul, pleading for her forgiveness, pleading for her repentance. And then he talks about what happens next, a few weeks later, 32 hours later. 32 hours later, this is what happened. He says, and I quote, I was shaving When Carol, my wife, burst through the door, her eyes wide. Go downstairs, she blurted. Christy's here. I wiped off the shaving foam and headed down the stairs, my heart pounding. As I came around the corner, I saw my daughter on the kitchen floor, rocking on her hands and knees, sobbing. She grabbed my trouser leg and began pouring out her anguish. My vision was as clouded by tears as hers. I pulled her up from the floor and held her close as we cried together. Suddenly she drew back, Daddy, she said with a start. Who was praying for me? Who was praying for me? Her voice was like that of a solicitor and an attorney. On Tuesday night, Daddy, who was praying for me? When her father didn't respond to her question, she continued, In the middle of the night, God woke me and showed me that I was heading towards an abyss. There was no bottom to it. It scared me to death. I was so frightened I realized just how hard-hearted I've been, how wrong, how rebellious. But at the same time, it was like God wrapped his arms around me and held me tight. He kept me from sliding any further as he said, I still love you. Just months later, Chrissy had her enrolled in Bible college. She now lives in the Midwest of America with her husband who's a pastor. And Pastor Jim Sambala ends the story with this: Through all this, Carol and I learned, as never before, that persistent calling upon the Lord breaks through every stronghold of the devil. For nothing is impossible with.